This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDETF. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. President-elect Joe Biden won Michigan's 16 electoral college votes by winning the popular vote here by more than 150,000 votes. That is a fact, and it has held up despite an outpouring of Republican conspiracy theories that tried to overturn that with theories about widespread thought fraud. Any reasonable person knows Joe Biden won easily here in Michigan and across the country, and yet the roller coaster ride has not ended. This week brought us a three-ring circus in the form of legislative hearings in Lansing that featured President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, as ringleader. And Republican Party leaders, including State Party Chair Laura Cox, continue to spew baseless claims about fraud in an election that, by all legitimate accounts, was one of the smoothest we've ever seen here in Michigan. Last week, after the Board of State canvassers certified Michigan's election results, Politico chief political correspondent and Michigander Tim Alberta wrote an incredibly in-depth recount of Republican attempts to cast doubt on the election and on our entire democratic system. The piece pulls back the curtain on what went on behind the scenes during and after the election. And it has also generated a fair amount of controversy, even among Democrats. Here to talk about his reporting on all of these things is Tim Alberta. Tim, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start with the premise uh, of your piece. It is uh, unvarnished, uh, and we should encourage people to go read the full piece at Politico. But walk us through your reporting on what was going on with Republican officials and operatives during the election and in its aftermath and how this massive effort to unseat a Democratic outcome took hold. Yeah, well, Stephen, look, I I think uh, the most important point perhaps at, at the outset to make is that You had a number of these battleground states where both parties and both nominees had invested, you know, millions of dollars and lots of their time and resources that were very, very close on election night uh, and and sort of in the immediate aftermath of election day, states that were decided by, you know, 10,000 votes, 15,000 votes, 20,000 votes. Michigan was not one of those states, right? Michigan, which four years ago, was decided by 10,704 votes in the president's favor, was not particularly close this time around. As you said a moment ago, Joe Biden won the state by 150,000 votes and uh, plus. And, and so you would look at that and, and wonder to yourself, well, why did this state that was the most comfortable margin of victory for Joe Biden of any of these battleground states that, that they were fighting over, why did Michigan turn into the three-ring circus? Why did Michigan become a sort of um, conspiracy central? What, what was it about Michigan? And uh, there are a few answers to that question. I, I think you start with the fact that there was an enormous amount of, uh, of investment here from Ronna Romney McDaniel, who's the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee and who had you know, essentially been tasked with delivering her home state 
to the president. Um, you know, she she won the chair of the RNC in no small part four years ago because of the president carrying Michigan. And that was sort of her pet project. And there was uh, a lot of pressure on her to deliver the state. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to not deliver the state and for the president to lose. But then to be seen as sort of giving up or waving the white flag, as it is viewed inside the Republican Party right now, for anyone who does not advance the president's discredited claims of a rigged election and insinuations of mass voter fraud, then that would be sort of a bridge too far. And, and Ronna McDaniel wants very much to keep her job as RNC chair, and she knows that that would be pretty much impossible if she were to show any daylight between herself and the president right now. So that's one thing. You've got naked political ambition of people who don't want to uh, sort of um, break with the president or put a bullseye on their back by doing so. And I think the other thing, briefly, Stephen, that we have to appreciate here is that uh, the Michigan legislature, along with the legislatures in some other states, they refused to allow for the pre-processing of absentee ballots, despite knowing that there was going to be a historic influx of absentee ballots. And essentially what that did was it set up a situation where all of the same-day ballots cast that were going to be disproportionately friendly to the president, they were going to be counted first, and there was going to be sort of the illusion of a Trump victory shown on Tuesday night, on election night. Mm -hmm. And then in the you know, 36 hours thereafter, as the rest of the ballots were being tabulated, Joe Biden, by virtue of the Democratic Party's strength on the absentee voting front, he was going to come roaring back and maybe even come into the lead, as he did in Michigan, as he did in several other states. And it was sort of a perfect storm in Michigan because so many of those ballots were being counted in Detroit. And Detroit has always been the boogeyman for Republicans for some obvious reasons. And uh, when you combine the... The, the, the incidents at the TCF Center and, and Republican uh, manipulation of those, of those events at the TCF Center and everything else that was at stake in a state like Michigan, not just for the president, but for some of his allies here, uh, it all adds up to this complete mess and, and this disinformation campaign that has really uh, sort of humiliated Michigan in the eyes of the nation. Yeah. Um, this, this effort was focused on the city of Detroit and focused on the votes here in the city of Detroit. And the goal was to convince uh, either lawmakers or courts, I suppose, uh, to set aside a large number of those votes that uh, people falsely said were fraudulently cast or fraudulently counted uh, in order to switch the the outcome uh, of of what happened on on election day here to to make it so that president trump could win uh of course you you can't talk about that without talking about race uh, this is a city that's 85% african american uh and most of the votes cast here are cast by african americans um but you also can't talk about that without sort of ignoring all of the th other things that happened on election day here in the state of michigan the way that the president lost in Oakland County, for instance, uh, very different than he did in 2016. The way that he lost in Kent County, where Grand Rapids is, super different from Election Day. But, but talk about how they settled on the idea of attacking Detroit and Detroiters and Detroiters' right to vote, which invokes all kinds of 
awful history uh, and and real uh, real racist undertones uh, or overtones in this case uh, to the to what they were doing. Well, the point you just made, Stephen, is incredibly important. Uh, there is a reason that the president and his Republican allies in the state would rather not spend time talking about uh, his significantly diminished vote share among white college-educated suburbanites in Oakland County or in Kent County or even Livingston County, the most conservative big county in the state. The president won it by 30 points back in 2016. He won it by just over 22 points this year. That's an eight-point drop in the Republican stronghold in this state, the biggest Republican stronghold in this state. That really matters. And, and, and there is clear evidence uh, quantitatively that those are the margins that really cost the president. But there's a reason that he and his uh, allies would rather not talk about those areas because it's much easier to demagogue America's uh, biggest uh, majority African-American city in Detroit. And uh, when, when you look at what uh, the, the president's legal team and what the Michigan Republican Party and, and their affiliates have attempted to do, they have uh, sort of set forth this, this um, kind of constantly evolving argument about, um, you know, one moment it's that uh, they didn't have proper access to challenge the counting of these ballots. And the next moment it's, well, look at all these affidavits from people saying that they saw crazy stuff happening with these ballots. And obviously those two arguments are sort of at conflict with one another. But, but I think the root of the issue here, Stephen, is that, as I reported in the piece, uh, all of the Republican poll challengers who were allowed in the TCF Center, 134 of them, and, and by all accounts, according to people who were in the room, there were far more Republicans than 134, that they had actually at, at one point sort of flooded into the room, and there was really no way to even keep count of them anymore. So they had more than their allotted uh, amount of poll challengers. But what's interesting is that, uh, according to Chris Thomas, the longtime nonpartisan official who worked under secretaries of state of both parties, mm -hmm. who was brought in to help run things at the TCF Center for those 72 hours, that all of the Republican poll challengers were perfectly respectful and responsible and well-trained and knew what they were doing up until the wee hours of Wednesday morning when Joe Biden began to threaten and it became apparent that he was going to overtake Donald Trump in the statewide tally. And that is when, according to Thomas and according to several other people I spoke with, a switch flipped. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, Republican poll challengers, new, new folks began to flood into the room. And as Thomas said, they were on a mission. They weren't there just to help you know, supervise a well-run election anymore. They were there because they were on a mission. They were there to try and disrupt things. They were there to try and catch voter fraud because they were convinced it was happening. And that's when this thing suddenly went off the rails. And when you read some of the affidavits, as Thomas said, some of them are just are laughable. And there's a reason that the Trump campaign withdrew its lawsuit uh, against Detroit. There's a reason that the Trump campaign has lost 40 cases in federal court and has won only one of them. Um, they, they've essentially been laughed out of courtrooms uh, across the country because they don't really have a case. And the insinuations that they're making in public about fraud are allegations that they would never actually make in court because these people would lose their law licenses over it. Yeah. And, and, and so it's been a campaign of d disinformation and demagoguery and a lot of winking and nodding at white Michiganders talking about all of the malfeasance in black Detroit, when in fact there is still 
despite four weeks of enormous scrutiny, almost no evidence whatsoever of any sort of fraud at the TCF Center. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Tim Alberta. He is the chief political correspondent for Political Magazine. He wrote a piece last week titled The Inside Story of Michigan's Fake Voter Fraud Scandal. We're talking about that piece and about this extraordinary effort by Republicans here in the state of Michigan to reverse the results of the 2020 presidential election in our state where Joe Biden won the state by more than 150,000 votes. They say uh, a lot of those votes were cast fraudulently or counted fraudulently and should be thrown out, and that, in fact, President Trump won Michigan. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you make of the Republican Party's response to this election, not just national Republicans uh, like Rudy Giuliani, who was here testifying Uh, in front of our legislature this week, but people like Laura Cox, who is the chair of the Michigan Republican Party, who has aided and abetted all of this madness, all of this lying and uh, dissembling that has gone on uh, about what happened in election 2020. Uh, Are you a Republican or someone who considers yourself conservative? We would love to hear from you about how you're taking all of this in. What do you think of the way that your party is responding to what happened uh, in the election. Uh, Also, give us a call and let us know what you think the Republican Party is going to have to do after this to walk away from this with clean hands. Uh, How do you repair the damage that has been done to reputation and to the faith that people have in the democratic process? by all of the things that have been said and done. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we can uh, make you a part of the show uh, that way. Um, uh, Tim, before we get to listeners, I want to talk about... um, something you tweeted yesterday, and it's something that that a lot of people have been saying for a long time, which is that all of this madness could have been avoided if the legislatures in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania had allowed clerks to pre-process ballots. I mean, this is one of the more galling dynamics of all of this to me. Uh, Here in Michigan, the, the legislature was asked to pass a law that allowed uh, the, the the elections officials to start processing ballots before election day because they knew how many they were going to get through mail and absentee because of the changes we made to our voting process in 2018. The legislature said no. They said they didn't want to allow that. And then as soon as the election happened, you saw Republicans, some who are in the legislature and others saying, well, now this is a this is a, a problem. This is proof of fraud because all of these ballots uh, are coming in after Election Day. I mean, it, it really made zero sense, uh, but but exposes uh, a kind of duplicity that I think, uh, again, is so galling and so far beyond what I've ever seen before uh, in national politics. Duplicity is exactly the right word, Stephen. Uh, Let's be very clear about this. Um, There were a great number of Republicans who essentially wanted to create a a self-fulfilling prophecy here, who believed that mail voting at a mass level was illegitimate 
and that uh, they were not going to allow for those mail votes to be counted ahead of time because they wanted the spectacle of, uh, of President Trump jumping out to this early lead, which, again, everyone understood would happen. This is not rocket science. Everyone, everybody understood that Democrats would be disproportionately voting absentee and that Republicans would be disproportionately voting same day in person and that those same-day in-person votes are counted first. Mm -hmm. Everybody understood how this was going to go. And there's a reason that in Michigan, the governor and Democrats in the legislature spent months pleading with Republicans, uh, and, and, and the same thing happened in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin, pleading with Republicans, you know, look, we're going to have a real circus on our hands if you don't give these people at least, you know, 72 hours to pre-process these millions of ballots, let them remove them from the envelopes. They don't even need to count them. Just let them remove them from the envelopes, get them sorted, um, straighten them out, get everything ready to be counted, because that's the time-consuming part of this. And the Republicans refused. And the really bizarre thing about this, Stephen, is that, you know, with all of the president's rhetoric, about how, you know, mail voting is, is uh, susceptible to fraud, not, not just susceptible to fraud, but it is fraud, right? That, that, it's a, that the whole thing is one big effort to cheat him out of the presidency, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Republican states like Florida, uh, like Ohio, like North Carolina, like Texas, they all allowed for pre-processing of ballots, right? Like this is not some, some deeply partisan issue, but because the sort of mass absentee balloting uh, was so new, in Michigan and in a couple of these other states, the, the Republicans here, they got cold feet. They didn't want to be seen as soft. They didn't want to be seen as uh, in, in any way sort of propping up this program that the president was attacking and that their own constituents were all agitated about. Mm -hmm. And so they played politics with something that is just not political. And, and we're all paying the price for it now. And frankly, as I said, you know, the, the damage is done. Like, I, I, I sincerely hope that Republicans in Michigan and elsewhere will come to their senses and work on a bipartisan basis to, to allow in future elections for these ballots to be pre-processed the way that they are in all of these other states so that we can avoid this kind of a, a mess. But i got to tell you, Stephen, like all my reporting in the last few weeks, I feel like the genie's out of the bottle. You have so many Republican voters now who believe that because they went to bed on Tuesday night and Trump was winning by big margins and then by Wednesday afternoon he was behind, they believe that that is ipso facto proof that the president was cheated out of this election. And there's nothing you can say to convince them otherwise. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will hear from listeners about what has been going on trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election here in Michigan. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter. The comments there, we'll try to work them in that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I've got Tim Alberta with us. He's the chief political correspondent for Politico magazine. Wrote a piece last week titled The Inside Story of Michigan's Fake Voter Fraud Scandal. We're talking about the way that Republicans have been trying to overturn the results of the election that we all cast ballots in just a few weeks ago. If you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Sammy in Detroit. Sammy, 
Welcome to the show. Good morning, and uh, welcome also uh, to the uh, listener and uh, definitely to your guest at the studio. And um, I have two things to share with you. Number one, I wanted to answer the question of what the Republican Party should do next. Uh, the Republican Party need to look to their base and do not be scared of uh, declaring the winning of uh, President Biden. And uh, they should go forward and try to maintain what's remain of their credibility in the heart and the mind of all the American people, including uh, Republican and non-Republican, because I believe that majority of the Republican Party leaders are afraid of Trump uh, if that he felt at any moment that they are not supporting him to the end, even if it's a dead end, he's going to be like taking uh, a big portion of their base, like up to 70 million, and maybe start his own party. Mm. This is something that definitely in their mind. Yeah. On the other hand, I wanted to comment about the uh, Arab American community in Michigan. Uh-huh. With, they shifted their voting from 2016 up to 60, 69% of the Arab American voted in 2016 for President Trump. And this is for two reasons. And the reason why I've been able to be uh, in a little bit in, a, in an analysis circle of this voting process for the Arab American community, because I am an activist and I'm also in the media of the Arab American okay. community. Yeah. So they, they voted for him for two reasons. Number one, he was a new theme, a new harmony, a new song, a new tone, rather than all the tones that they've been listening to it for a long time. Yeah. Number two, before September 11, majority of the Arab American community members were Republican because of the conservative atmosphere and conservatives principles that the Republican Party adapt. After September 11, when the President Bush and his administration start attacking the Arab American community, and as a reflection of September 11, they shifted their uh, party right. affiliation to the Democrat. Now with Trump being conservative again and not attacking them directly as, as what they thought back in 2016, they supported him. Four years. He is attacking immigrants. Right. He is attacking the immigrants' policy. He is against the immigrants' change. Sammy, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but, but I do want to give Tim Alberta a chance to, to, to respond to what you're saying. And I, and I, I get what you're talking about here. I, and I, I am eager to dig into the results um, uh, to, to see if that switch really took place and, and where it took place. Uh, you know, there are precincts that we can look at for, to, to see that. But I want to get back to your original question, which is what the GOP should do now. After making this incredible mess, what, what's the way forward? Uh, I think that's a great question, Tim Alberta. Boy, the way forward is, is pretty murky, Stephen, uh, because if, if you think about this from the perspective of a lot of the Republicans who are aspiring to lead the party in, in the years to come, uh, you know, this election actually sort of presents a worst-case scenario for anybody who was preparing to make a move. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. There were essentially two outcomes that, that were expected kind of at either end of the spectrum here. One was that the president was going to win uh, narrowly again and that there would be you know, a, a hard expiration date on his presidency, that if he won a second term, 
then he would be gone in January of 2024, and that Republicans, you know, beginning right now, could start, you know, uh, hiring their staffs and, and scheduling fundraisers and, and preparing for their presidential runs, which would get off the ground in, you know, 18 months or so. Um, the other uh, scenario that most people expected was that the president would lose very badly, uh, that he that there would be a massacre at the polls, and that um, by virtue of getting you know, sort of swept out of office in a landslide, that the president would lose some significant chunk of his support uh, among Republicans and that he would not be, you know, considered really a viable political brand moving forward. And what's happened, of course, is exactly in the middle of those two scenarios. The president lost, but he lost uh, by closer margins than, than many folks would have expected. And by virtue of uh, his and the party's uh, allegations of mass voter fraud and their continued attempts to deceive the public, which have been very effective, mind you, uh, in, in, in convincing Republicans that this was not a legitimate election and that it, he was cheated out of a second term, I think there's a very good chance that the president uh, retains a stronger grip on the Republican Party after leaving office than he ever had while he was in office. Mm. And, and, and if that's the case, then these questions about, you know, where does the party go from here are essentially moot because the president has already begun telling people that he's going to run in 2024 if this, if this uh, sort of ham-fisted attempt to overturn the, re- the results of this election don't work, which it will not, that he's said that he's going to run again. And even if he's just teasing that, you better believe he's going to spend the next three and a half years teasing it and that he's going to sort of loom as a, as a shadow over the entire Republican Party, essentially paralyzing the likes of Mike Pence or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or anybody else who's mm. thinking about trying to run and, and, and usurp his power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Tim Alberta, whenever you come on, we, we run out of time before we get to all the things I want to talk to you about <laughs> and get to all of the callers uh, who have great points uh, to raise as well. But we, we are out of time. I want to thank you uh, profusely, though, for uh, coming on to discuss this piece. It's always yeah. great to have you. My pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Okay. Uh, That is going to do it for us this week. Uh, I will be back on Monday when we are going to talk with Congressman Andy Levin, who was also reelected this November and may be in the mix for a pretty important job in the executive branch in Washington after Joe Biden is is sworn in as president on January 20th next year. We will talk to him uh, about all of that then. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.